You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, you can open with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians in your New Testament. But uh, before we get into our Bible study today, there are a few things I wanted to talk with you guys about. Uh, one of them is we got some magazines on the back table. We brought these. And the reason I want to tell you about them is because there's this photo in here that was taken by our very own Travis Herger. I heard he's going to be signing copies after service. If you're interested, but I mean, they're going fast. There's only a couple left. Uh, what this is, this is a photo of, uh, you know, Travis and I went to Eastern Europe a couple months ago. And our church here at Whitefields, we had raised some money to buy a bunch of Bibles for Iranian refugees, Persian Bibles, so that they could read the Bible in their own language. Super expensive and they're hard to come by. But you guys gave money and we were able to buy Bibles. And when we were over there, we were able to meet a lot of these refugees personally who had gotten the Bibles, which you guys purchased. And then we were able to actually get them even some more Bibles while we were there. But uh, they have this Bible study group that meets every week. And here's a picture of it. There's an article about uh, refugees in Europe and what God's doing over there among them. So I encourage you to check that out. There's only a few copies left on the back table, so make sure you grab one. Talk to Travis about it. Right now, currently, uh, it's posted on The City, which is kind of our internal uh, social network where we share prayer requests and things that are going on and stuff like that. But we have another thing that we're raising money for. We'd like to buy two laptop computers for a ministry in Budapest that works with human trafficking, so anti-human trafficking. So if you would like to be involved in putting an end to human trafficking and, sl- and human slavery, here's a great way to do it. Just uh, we, we need to get these people some laptops so they can do their administrative work. So check that out on the city. There's one other thing I wanted to tell you guys about. Uh, I'm going to have the Ambrys family. Why don't you guys come on up here? Ambrys family have been a big part of Whitefields for several years now, especially in our children's ministry. They, uh, they've been teaching a lot, and they've just been you know, an integral part of our church. And we're sad to see them go. They're moving back to Southern California, which is where they're from. Richard got a job there. And so they're moving. This is their last Sunday with us. So I would like to ask you to please bow your heads, and we're going to pray for them and send them off with a blessing. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for the Ambrose family. Thank you for how you have used them to bless our church and bless our kids over the years. And uh, thank you for their faithfulness in ministry and their faithfulness to this body and your work here. And we send them off now with a blessing. We pray that you would provide for them as they go and take care of them. We pray that you'd lead them to a great body of believers there in California where they can use the gifts that you've given them to build your kingdom and to bless other people. So we pray blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. He's going to take care of that for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, also... Their boys are two of the ones who are getting baptized. We have uh, several people getting baptized later today. Probably heard the announcement, but I hope that you all come and support that. That's a big deal in these people's lives, and we'd love for you to be there and, you know, celebrate with them and uh, celebrate with them as they make this step and this, this statement that they have chosen to follow Jesus, and we as a church body get to support them in that and celebrate that with them. So that'll be after church address. We've got flyers in the back and everything, so we hope you'll join us for that. Recently, we began a new series going through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and in in the series, we're calling it The Pursuit of Happiness. And in the series, 
We're studying this letter which was written under very dark circumstances, but yet, in spite of that, it bursts forth with joy and with hope. And as we're studying this book, what we're discovering is, we are discovering the keys to finding the happiness which we desire and the joy which we were made for. So if you please bow your heads with me, and we'll pray as we continue in this study of this letter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so good to us. We thank you for your grace to us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that you speak to us through it. And we pray that this morning, as we study your word, that we would hear your voice in it, that your spirit would speak to us, and that we would receive it, and that as a result, it would bear much good fruit in our lives for your glory and for our good, for the good of those around us. We pray that you do a good work amongst us this morning and that we would leave changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So it has been said that there are some fates that are worse than death. This week, uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch in Richmond, Virginia, uh, in the obituary section, they ran an obituary for a woman named Mary Ann Nolan. Maybe some of you saw this in the news. Here's a true story. So here's what her obituary said. Uh, I'll read it to you. It says, Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Mary Ann Noland of Richmond, Virginia, chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May 15, 2016, at the age of 68. Now, local news reached out to this woman's family, and they confirmed that they had written this obituary. This was her actual obituary. Miss Noland uh, was a committed Christian, which is reflected in the rest of the obituary. And so because of her faith in the gospel... She found the prospect of death a whole lot less scary than the prospect of voting in the upcoming presidential election. And I can kind of sympathize with Ms. Nolan. In fact, I'm a little bit jealous, right? So here in uh, the book of Philippians, what we have is a letter which was written by a man who was in jail. That man was the Apostle Paul, and he was in jail because of his faith in Jesus Christ. At the point when he wrote this letter, Paul had been in custody for three years approximately. It's been three years of really one bad thing after another, one worse thing after another. Three years of people saying nasty things about him that weren't true. Three years of corrupt politicians. Three years of physical suffering. Currently, he's locked in a room where he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And he's currently awaiting trial and this is going to be, this trial will be his final appeal hearing. What that means is after this, there's no more chances. There's no more appeals. One day, he doesn't know if it's going to be tomorrow or if it's going to be two years from now. He, he doesn't know. He's got this anxiety of not knowing what's going to happen. But one day, they're going to call him in. And depending on how that hearing goes and, you know, what kind of mood the, the person listening to him is in, he's either going to be released or he's going to be executed. It's kind of a zero-sum game, right? And so you can understand, these were not easy circumstances to be in. And so Paul, writing this letter, he's writing to a church in Philippi, a church which he at one time pastored, a church he started during his time as a missionary, and he's writing to tell them, I'm okay. Even though my circumstances are bad, I'm doing good. In fact, here in jail, not only am I surviving, but I'm actually thriving, and the reason that Paul was able to not only survive in jail, but even thrive in these circumstances is because as a Christian, Paul had a source of joy which was not tied to his circumstances. 
His source of joy was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nothing that happened to him, because of that, nothing that happened to him could ever take away from him what Jesus had done for him. The hope that he had because of the gospel, it expressed itself in joy. It's this hope which enabled Paul to make this incredible statement where he says, For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'll tell you what, if you think about it, that is Christianity in a nutshell. That is what Christianity is all about. To live is Christ and then to die is gain. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you receive God's grace to you, it gives your life a whole new meaning. No longer do you live only for yourself, only to please yourself, but now you begin to live for Him. What pleases Him? Not only what do I want to do, but what does He want me to do? But perhaps the most profound thing about the gospel is that the gospel redefines death. Whereas previously, death was a loss. Death was defeat. Through the gospel, death is now gain. Where previously death was something to be feared, now death is something to rejoice in, even something to anticipate and look forward to. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this, that Jesus, through his death on the cross, he destroyed the power of death. And delivered those for, who all, for whom all their lives they had been slaves to the fear of death. And so for a Christian, death is no longer something to be feared. Rather, death is even gain. See, that's what Mary Ann Nolan, the woman in the obituary, that's what she felt. She was like, I can choose Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or the, the paradise with Jesus forever. I think I'll take paradise. Go ahead, Lord. Take me now. Right? I'm ready to go. But yet, as good as that is, let me ask you this. Is that all the Christian life is? I mean, is that really it? Is that all it is? Just kind of getting saved and then hanging on until one day you die and just praying, God, take me out of here soon. Death, please come and take me. Or Jesus, please come back and rescue me from this God-forsaken planet as soon as possible. Is that all the Christian life is? And if it is, well, then why not just speed up the process, right? Why not take up smoking? Just kind of speed things up a little bit, right? Why not start running with scissors in your hands? Why not just uh, start crossing into traffic without looking both ways? I mean, anything you can do to speed things up. Because if all that matters is going to heaven, well, then we're just kind of biding our time here, right? And kind of trying to like, uh, like when you're trying to pass time like in the waiting room for the doctor or something, right? But is that all Christianity is? Just being saved from this world and hoping you can get out of here as soon as possible so you can go to heaven? Well, let me tell you this. That is not the attitude that the Apostle Paul had, and it's not the attitude that Paul wanted the Philippians to have, and I don't believe it's the attitude that God wants any of us to have. Because God's purpose in our salvation is not only to save us from this world, it's also to save us for this world. Let me explain what I mean. It's that he, there's a sense in which he has a plan for your life to use you for his purposes and his glory here in this life. God's purpose for you is that you would live a life that is worthy of the gospel. That's the title of today's message, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? There are three things that we're going to look at here in this section as to what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel. And here's, here's what we're going to see. Number one, don't check out yet. Don't check out yet. Secondly, strive together. And thirdly, live counterintuitively. So don't check out yet. Strive together and live counterintuitively. 
Let's begin with that first point. Don't check out yet. We're going to read from chapter 1, starting in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here in this study, through Paul's letter to Philippians, we are talking about the keys to having an indestructible sense of joy. And here's one of them. Here's one of the keys. Heaven is not the consolation prize. Heaven is the jackpot. Heaven's not the consolation prize. Heaven is the jackpot. You all know what a consolation prize is, right? It's like, sorry you lost, but maybe this will help you feel a little bit better about losing, right? No, heaven is not the consolation prize. Like, this is where it's at, and then, you know, bummer that you're not here anymore, but here's a consolation prize. No, heaven is the jackpot. The reason Paul wants to go to heaven isn't because life here on earth is so unbearable. The reason Paul wants to go to heaven is because it is exceedingly better. He says, I feel torn, really. I I want to go to heaven. I want to be done with sickness and tears and tragedy. I'm so over it, right? Like, I want to be done with that stuff forever, for good. Even now, like, even one more day of this is going to be a lot worse than eternity in heaven. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, that word depart the, the word that's used there. In Greek, that's a, that's a word that was used in specific circumstances. And here were some of those circumstances. This word depart was used to describe when a slave was set free by their master. It was used also to describe when someone was set free from jail after they had served their sentence. It was also used when you would, uh, if you were breaking down your tent, you know, we call it breaking camp. That's another way uh, this word was used. And another way it was used was when a ship would leave the security and safety of the harbor and head out on a voyage into the open seas. So these are all the images that Paul is conjuring up, that he's um, invoking when he uses this word. He says, I want to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He says, it it would be great. I cannot wait for it. It would be so much better than even spending one more minute here. And that that hope of heaven, that is a source of joy for me. And he says, that hope of heaven, it puts everything else in perspective. All of the things that I'm suffering right now, it puts them all in perspective. That in compared to what is to be revealed to me, these sufferings are light. They are momentary. They are nothing worth comparing with the glory which is to be revealed to me on that day when my faith will become sight and when I will see God face to face. But yet, I'm not ready to check out just yet. In fact, I'm not even in a hurry to get out of here. And here's why. Because God has work for me to do. It's not quitting time yet. Heaven is so much better, but departing from this earth, although good for Paul, would be bad for other people. And that's true of you as well. Do you realize that? So don't check out yet. It's not quitting time yet. Heaven is an upgrade, a big upgrade. But there are certain things which you cannot do in heaven. I've got a little list for you, just a few. I'm sure there are more. In heaven, here are some things you can't do, you will never be able to do. You'll never be able to share the gospel. 
You'll never be able to invite someone to come to church and hear the gospel presented. In heaven, you'll never be able to reach out to people and be used by people and see God use you to change someone else's life or even their eternal destiny. In heaven, you can't restore a prodigal or reach out to someone who's backsliding. In heaven, you can't feed the hungry or give hope to the hopeless or minister in Jesus' name to those who are hurting. You see, the reason heaven is heaven is because those things won't be necessary. Those things will have passed away. And there will be fullness of joy in the presence of God forever. Heaven will be exceedingly better for you. But what about everybody else, right? What about the others? See, you and I, here's the thing. We have a small window of time right now. And it's getting smaller every day. It's closing. We have a small window of time when we can do those things. When we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Jesus said this in John chapter uh, 9 verse 4. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. For the night is coming when no one can work. So we have this short window of time here on earth while it's still day in which we get to do the things which we will have the chance to only do here. See, our ultimate joy, our best life, that is to come. But don't check out yet. See, the goal of life for a Christian is not to be as comfortable in this life as possible. That's not the goal. The goal is to spend the fleeting moments that we have which are evaporating into thin air right before us to do the sorts of things which it will be impossible to do even one minute after you pass into eternity. We've got one life to live. The window of opportunity is closing, so let's give it all we've got. What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It doesn't mean living in such a way as to deserve the gospel. I don't want you to misunderstand what that means. In other words, it doesn't mean being good enough that you're able to receive the gospel. That's not even possible. See, we could never deserve what Jesus has done for us. That's why it's called grace, because we don't deserve it. What it is talking about is how we should live in light of the gospel, in response to the gospel. If the gospel is the greatest treasure the world has ever known, and we have been given it through Christ then how should we live in response? And here's the first thing in this. Don't check out. Don't check out yet. Don't just bide your time like you're in a waiting room waiting for the real thing to happen until you can just get out of here. Live worthy of the gospel, which means this. Remember that you've got a short window of time here where you have the special opportunity to be used by God to do his work in the world. Things which will be impossible for us to do even one minute after this life is over. To live a life worthy of the gospel means to live for something bigger than just yourself. Something bigger than just yourself. That's what Paul's talking about here. If we're living only for ourselves, uh, you know, if Paul was living only for himself, he would just want to check out. He would want to leave. He would want to bide his time. But Paul says, no, I'm not just living for myself. I'm living also for others. I want to know what I can do for other people and for the kingdom of God. And so that's why he says, I'm looking forward to heaven, but I'm not in a hurry to get out of here. Because I've got this window of time in which I can be used by God to do his work in other people's lives. And that's a privilege. That is a privilege. It's a special thing. The second thing here, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? It means striving together. Please read with me verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Look at the imagery here. What does he say? He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And I love this image. He says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here's the deal. A life worthy of the gospel is one that involves unity and one that involves mission. Unity and mission. The mission that God has called us to, it's not just your individual mission. It's something that we're called to work for together corporately. We as believers were called to link arms with each other, stand side by side, pool our resources, and strive together for the faith of the gospel. In verse 30, Paul says, I want you to be engaged in the same conflict that I am engaged in. What is that conflict? It's the conflict. It's fighting for, grappling for, scrapping for, working towards the spread of the gospel and the work of God in the world. What's interesting is that usually those words, strive, conflict, these are things that we generally think that we want to avoid, right? Striving, that's generally, we think of that in a kind of pejorative, negative sense. You know, a conflict, that's something we usually try to avoid. But here Paul says, no, here's something you should be striving for. Here's something you should be engaged in conflict about, Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 1.29, he says, We proclaim Jesus, and for this, I love this, he says, For this we toil, and we struggle with all the energy which, with which he powerfully works within us. In fact, this word conflict here, it's the Greek word agon, from which we get our word agony, or agonize. That's what he's describing here. It, this word, interestingly, it describes the agony which an athlete feels when they are pushing themselves, you know, pushing their body further and further. Like when you're running, those of you who run long distance, for example, you know this feeling. You know what it, that agony of pushing your body just a little bit further. That's what he's talking about, this straining, pushing yourself. This is what it means for Paul to live worthy of the gospel, to give all of his life for him who gave all of his life for him. So giving all of his life for Jesus who gave all of his life for Paul. Now here in Philippians, we're talking about, of course, the pursuit of happiness. What are the keys to having real and lasting joy in your life? And here's an important one. In order to have joy, you have to have a mission. You, you can't have joy unless you have a mission. Mission is an absolute requirement for joy. So I like spending time with kids. Maybe that's because I'm a dad. Or hopefully it's not because I'm a childish person, but uh, hopefully it's just because kids are great. One of the things uh, that I like about kids is that they are so full of hope, right? Like when was the last time you met like a totally jaded six-year-old, right? Or like a, like a cynical seven-year-old. It just doesn't really happen. So this coming week, my daughter is going to graduate from kindergarten. I love kindergarten graduation. I mean, it's great. If you've ever been to a kindergarten graduation, you know what I'm talking about. They dress them up, the cap and the gown, and uh, they, there's this big formal ceremony, and all the kids talk about what they want to be when they grow up. 
And you know what's interesting? None of those kids, when you go to the kindergarten graduation, none of them says, you know, I'm kind of hoping that I can get like a cubicle. I don't need a window, right? Like just, I just want to push some papers. That's all I want to do. Just fill out papers all day. I kind of want to sit in front of a computer and, uh, you know, get one of those ergonomic chairs so I don't hurt my back and stuff like that. You know, and, the, and really, those are perfectly good jobs, right? Those are, and there's dignity in those jobs, and they serve a great purpose. But here's the thing. Those aren't the jobs that kindergartners want to have. What kind of jobs do kindergartners want to have? What do they dream about? They dream about being doctors. They dream about being soldiers. They dream about being the president of the United States. They want to be firefighters and police officers. They want to be missionaries. What do all those jobs have in common? They're all about helping other people, aren't they? They're about making a difference. They're about making things better, alleviating suffering, improving things, helping other people. The reason kids aspire to those occupations is because they want to do something meaningful for other people. See, here's the thing. Children innately have a sense of mission about their lives. Why do they want to do that? Why do they want to live for something bigger than themselves? Why do they want to help other people? Here's why. Because it brings them joy. It's that simple. The idea of helping other people, improving things, brings them joy. You see, in order to have joy, you need to have a mission. You need to live for something bigger than yourself. The reason why many people are unhappy and lack joy in their life is because they aren't living for anything bigger than themselves. They're running the rat race. They've got all the stuff, the house, the cars, the hobbies, all the gear, but they're lacking joy. And the reason they lack joy is because they lack a mission, a mission which is bigger than themselves and their own life. When you've got no higher cause to live for than just making yourself happy and comfortable, then you've got nothing worth sacrificing for. You've got nothing worth dying for. You've got nothing worth giving everything for except yourself. And at that point, you are flirting with insignificance. If you want to have joy, you've got to have a mission. The reason Paul had joy was because Paul had a mission. So he wants the Philippians to have joy also. And so he says, here's the key. Guys, you need to strive together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Link your arms and go fight for this. Be engaged in this conflict. Get to work so that other people can know the joy that comes from the gospel. So that you yourselves can have the joy that comes from being on mission with God. In the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, there's a scene. Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. And as part of the Last Supper, he prays for them. This is known as the high priestly prayer. So there he is. He's in the presence of all the disciples. And he's praying for them. And he's speaking to God as he prays over his disciples. And in verse 13 of that chapter, Jesus says, I want my disciples to be filled with the joy that I have. And then he says in verse 18, So Father, just as you sent me into the world, now I send them into the world. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Father, I want my disciples to have the same joy that I have, and therefore, now I am giving them the same mission that you gave me. You see, the two are connected together. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, there's this incredible statement. It says that for the joy... The joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. See, Jesus endured the cross for you. He bore your sin and your shame. That's the story of the cross. But this verse takes us behind the scenes. It takes us behind the scenes to where the Father came to the Son in eternity past and said, I'm going to send you on a mission. 
I'm going to send you on a mission to bring truth and salvation to a world that is broken and dying under the curse of sin and death. And you're going to go to them and you're going to save them. But it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. You're going to have to take all the punishment, all the suffering. It's all going to fall upon you. And it's going to crush you. It's going to dash you to pieces. But as a result, people are going to be saved. Lives are going to be transformed. People are going to be set free forever. You are going to redeem them. And Jesus considered the mission. He considered both the cost of the mission. He considered the results of the mission, the payoff of the mission. And his heart was filled with one thing. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. His heart was filled with one thing. Thinking about both the cost and the payoff, the one thing it filled his heart with was joy. It was joy, knowing the final outcome. And that was that joy of knowing the final outcome which carried him through the difficult times, which made him able to endure the cross and bear the shame. It was joy. And so Jesus says, I want other people to have my joy. I want my people to have my joy. And so for, to that end, I am giving them my mission so that they might have my joy. See, so many people are lacking joy because they're lacking mission. They have no higher commitment than themselves. And here's the most ironic part about that, that the more significance you place upon your own life, the less significant your life will actually be. The more significance you place upon your own life, the less significant your life will actually be in the big picture. The more you live for yourself, the less your life will actually matter in the big picture. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a mission. And if you accept this mission, God will use you to bring truth and life and salvation and redemption to the world. And yes, there will be a cost. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you resources. It's going to cost you all kinds of stuff. To, to fulfill this calling that I'm giving you. But it is something worth sacrificing for. Because in the end, there, there's really nothing more crucial than this mission. Paul says, if you want to have joy, here's the thing. Be united for this mission. Work at it with all of your might. There's a man named John Keith Falconer. He's somebody you should know about. He was an incredible man. He was born in Scotland in 1856. He was born into Scottish nobility, actually. His father was the Earl of Kintore, and he grew up in wealth and luxury. Uh, and as a young man, he became a famous athlete. At the time, there was a burgeoning sport called cycling, right? Nobody was sure if it was actually going to take off. But he was the first, the very first world champion of competitive cycling, this man, uh, John Keith Falconer, in 1878. He was also a renowned scholar. He became a professor at Cambridge University, which is kind of like the Hollywood of England, right? So like Cambridge University. And he taught Arabic and Middle Eastern studies, and he translated many Arab classics into English. So he was a pretty renowned guy, well-known. But despite all of his accomplishments, John Keith Falconer felt restless. Like there was something that was missing. There was something he was just discontent. You see, John Falconer was a committed Christian. And so what he did is, as a young man, after having attained all of these things and getting a professorship in Cambridge University, after having become the world champion of competitive cycling, he left England, he left uh, the UK and, and all of the things that he had there, and he moved to Yemen. He left wealth in Scotland and in England, 
and he moved to Yemen, which even to this day is like the poorest of the poor countries in the Arab world. He went to Yemen because he thought, I know Arabic and I know Jesus and these people don't know Jesus and I can use my knowledge of the Arabic language to bring the gospel to the Arabic world. And a lot of people question his decision. I mean, he's an aristocrat with a good job. He's a professor at Cambridge University. He, he's going to a place that's full of poverty where not only do people not know about Jesus, but they really aren't that interested in hearing about Jesus, right? And so who, who knows? Maybe they even respond with violence. And they told him, why would you waste your life? Let somebody else go, somebody who's not got as much going for them as you do. But here was his response. He said, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I want to burn it out bringing light to dark places. Let me say that again. I have one candle of life to burn, and I want to burn it out bringing light to dark places. See, here's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. It means to link arms as brothers and sisters and to strive together with all the strength of Christ within us and being engaged in the same conflict that Paul was in, working, grappling together for the faith of the gospel, burning out our candles, the candles of our lives for the light of Christ in dark places. And if we do that, we will have the same joy that Jesus had, a joy that is bigger than ourselves, a joy that's bigger than whatever circumstances life can throw at us. And that brings us to our final point, and that is to live counterintuitively. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's saying, if you have received the grace of God, then it's only fitting that you should show grace to each other, that you should be gracious to one another. It brings Paul joy to know that they are unified, that they're of one mind, and that they're of one accord. But here's the thing, in order to have unity, you have to have something else, right? You can't have unity unless you have humility. And that's what Paul's going to talk about next. Let's read from verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To live a life worthy of the gospel means to live counterintuitively. What does that mean? It means that instead of worrying about what do I need in order to be happy, you, be, you start thinking instead, what can I do to make other people happy and to bring happiness and joy to them? It means instead of promoting yourself, you take on the posture of a servant and you serve others. The nature of a servant is interesting, right? Think about the nature of a servant. You're rarely seen. You're rarely thanked. You're rarely appreciated. You're rarely acknowledged. And it's completely lacking in any glory or prestige. This counterintuitive way of living is exactly what Jesus taught as well. Jesus said if anyone tries to hold on to his own life, they will lose it. 
But if anyone gives up their life, if anyone lays down their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, that's how you will truly find it. Jesus taught his disciples, if anyone would be great among you, let him become the servant of all. That seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, if I'm always working to make other people happy, well, then who's going to make me happy, right? I'm going to end up unhappy, aren't I? Because all my attention and all my energy is focused on other people and making them happy. And this is the point. No, absolutely not. Just the opposite will happen. Just the opposite. If you want to be truly happy, live counterintuitively. If you want to have the kind of joy that Paul had, then take your focus off yourself and begin living for others and begin living for something which is infinitely bigger than yourself. Because here's the deal. Pride always backfires, but so does humility. Let me say that again. Pride always backfires, but so does humility. That's the good news. See, the bad news is pride, self-centeredness, always backfires. But the good news is, so does humility, self-forgetfulness, selflessness. Whenever you try to lift yourself up, it always backfires. It always ends up having the opposite effect of what you're trying to do. It always lowers your stature in the eyes of others. Pride always backfires, but so does humility, right? So pride always gets you, pride will get you blacklisted, But humility will get you celebrated. Proverbs 29, verse 23, it says this, One person's pride brings him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. In 2 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, God opposes, he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. That means pride puts God in the corner against you, but humility puts God in your corner. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less, right? And it's not thinking, oh, I'm such a loser. I'm just the worst ever. That's not humility because guess what? Who are you still thinking about? Yourself, right? Like who's still occupying all of your thoughts? You are. See, that's not humility, just thinking that you're a big loser and talking about how, how terrible you are. No, humility is just thinking less of yourself. Humility is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And, in, and this is the reason why humility is one of the great keys to joy. And that's incredibly counterintuitive. Because humility says, stop asking who's going to meet my needs, who's going to serve me, and rather take on the posture of a servant and start meeting the needs of others. And if you do that, guess what? You will be exalted. You will find joy and fulfillment. Why? Because, once again, you're living for something other than yourself. You're living for something bigger than yourself. To illustrate this principle, Paul points to Jesus. He's the greatest example of this who ever lived. Jesus' whole life was about living for something other than himself. So Jesus left his place on high and he came down low. Talk about culture shock, right? Like imagine leaving heaven and coming to a world that's cursed and taking on the limitations of a dying body. He was raised as a peasant in a town that people made fun of. He was born in a barn. Like, we joke about that. Like, what, were you born in a barn? Well, he was born in an actual barn, right? Like, he lived a life of humility. He stooped down and washed other people's feet. And Jesus told this to his disciples. He said, The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And this is the key. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus lived for something bigger than himself. And as a result, God highly exalted him. One commentator says about this section where Paul goes off on this kind of theological, you know, running on. He says this, In the whole range of Scripture, this paragraph stands out in almost unapproachable and unexampled majesty. Paul says something profound here. He says that Jesus, even though he was God, he emptied himself. That's the Greek word kenosis. And this is one of the great mysteries of all of eternity, that Jesus was both fully God and fully man at the same time. In theological terms, we call this the hypostatic union. It means that he was fully God, fully man at the same time. And yet, he chose to empty himself of his privileges as God. And he became like us. He didn't cease to be God, but as God, he willingly set aside his divine abilities, his privileges for a time. He humbled himself and became like us in every way. But he didn't stop there. He continued humbling himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was said that to die on a Roman cross was to die a thousand deaths. There are very few ways that were more dehumanizing to kill a person than to kill them on a cross. This is what Paul says to the Philippians. And to us, this is the secret to true joy. Not focusing on yourself, not living for yourself, but if you want true joy, here's how to get it. Empty yourself. Become a servant. If you want to find true life, it's found by laying down your life. It's counterintuitive. It's giving your life to God. That's how you will find true life. The way to true greatness, the way to true happiness is to take your focus off yourself and to live for something bigger than yourself. Pride and conceit, they always backfire. But so does humility and self-forgetfulness. This is the model of Jesus. Empty yourself. Give your life for something bigger than yourself. Give your life to Jesus, the one who gave his life for you. And be his hands and his feet in this world. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's the secret and the key to true and lasting joy. Jesus emptied himself so that you could be full. That's the message of the gospel. And on the cross, in that ultimate act of humility, Jesus died in our place, bearing our sins, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be healed, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could have eternal life. So that for us, rather than being lost, death could actually be gain. You remember that famous saying that we began with? For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's Christianity in a nutshell. But here's the thing. If you can't honestly say the first part, then you don't get the second part. If you can't say the first part, you don't get the second part. If you can't honestly say, for me, to live is Christ, then for you, to die will not be gain. It will actually be loss. You see, if for you, to live is hunting, or hiking, or work, or fashion, or pleasure, or even family, then for you, to die will be a loss. Because death will separate you from that thing which is your life. But if Christ is your greatest treasure, then death will only bring you actually to him. So I want to challenge you today to make a choice, to make a decision, to live for Christ, to make him your greatest treasure, and to begin to live for something bigger than your own life, something which death cannot take away from you, but will only bring you closer to. And I pray that today would be the day when you give your life to Christ so that you can know the true joy in this life, and so that for you, dying can actually be gain. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for this hope of the gospel. 
We thank you for this promise that death can actually be gained rather than loss if we have faith in you, if we've been redeemed by you. Lord, I pray for everyone here today, for those who would say, you know what, maybe for me, uh, honestly, to live it has not been Christ, but that's what I want. I want him to be my all-surpassing greatest treasure, the one thing that I live for above all else. Lord, I pray for those today who would make that decision to follow you. I pray you'd solidify the message of the gospel in their hearts. That it's not by what they do that they can come, but it's by what you have done for them on the cross. And Lord, I pray that today, each and every person in here would say, yes, for me to live is Christ. I, I choose to follow you. I give you my life. And I thank you that because of the gospel, death can actually be gained. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.